Welcome to the Christmas 2023 bonus episode of Side Streets, a podcast about the history and geography of London. I'm Alan Hertz, Emeritus Professor of Humanities at Holt International Business School. Despite my accent, I've been prowling London and learning about its past for over 40 years. Side Streets is a Black Lab media production, and my producer and editor is Wilhelm Schenk. For the first time on Side Streets, as our Christmas present to you, we have another voice. Hello, everyone. Producer Wilhelm here. Wilhelm is going to interview me so that you can get to know me and my approach to our subject a bit better. Then we will introduce our second season. Our first new full-length episode will appear in January. Thank you so much for having me, Alan. Oh, glad to have you here, Wilhelm. In fact, I'm lost without you. It's been a, it's been a fun ride with you over the last year. I've uh, learned so much things about London, uh, more things that I could ever comprehend. Your, your flattery is welcome. Well, shouldn't we start out this little interview segment with um, you explaining what initially sparked your interest in London's history and geography and how the passion has evolved over the years? Um, it started as a practical matter. I was largely teaching Americans coming over for a semester abroad, and it was important to give them something that they couldn't get at home. Um, so I thought the history of London would be a good subject and taking them out to museums and walks around the street would be a good way of ensuring that they got some special value from their London experience. But the history of London turned out to be fascinating in its own right. Cities are odd things. They don't really have clear boundaries. They grow organically and as technolo technology allows them to expand. Um, and I hadn't really done that kind of history before. I got really interested in it. And then London is in many ways, not in all ways, the first modern city. And teaching the history of London turns out to be in a large part teaching us how we got to be who we are and the way we are. It's a big subject. What was the, the initial response from those Americans when you showed them around? Um, I think they loved it. I'm still in touch with a lot of the visiting Americans from the early days. And um, in a couple of cases, they've brought families over and I've... Um, done a class that I did with them 10, 20 years ago. I've done it again for their children. So, Alan, in, in, in the beginning of each episode, you say that you, despite your accent, you've been prowling the streets of London for over 40 years. What made you come over the pond? Um, my first wife is, is responsible for that and, and for a lot of other stuff as well. Um, uh, she decided she was not happy in Canada where we were living and she decided she was going to come here and work for the Liberal Party as it was then. It's the Lib Dems now. And she discovered that I had to come too because it would be my student visa that would give her 
permission to work. Um, I was really glad to do it because my graduate work was on Victorian British culture and it was lovely to be surrounded by the things I studied. Um, that was thrilling. Um, and when I finished my doctorate, we had the choice of going back or staying here. And she was still really enjoying her work in the House of Commons. And I was still really enjoying being surrounded by the things I studied. So we stayed. We both have different spouses now, but we still live around the corner from each other, and we still seem to be committed to staying here forever. Well, I'm sure London is very, very uh, happy to have you. Speaking of London and the streets of it, what inspired you to start the Side Streets podcast? Because if we if we should uh, give the backstory about how this or how you came to me was that. I was sitting in school, you w were passing by and you were talking or I was we were briefly talking about what you were going to do after retirement. And you you said that, oh, I, I maybe want to start uh, uh, write a book or, or something. And I, I was like, you sh should start a YouTube channel because you have so much uh, interesting thoughts about everything. And you, you thought that was a very stupid idea. <laughs> But you um, you said to me that you really wanted to start a podcast. So if you can dive into that a little bit. Okay. Um, I've always felt that academics do their publication too early. Um, they're very active early in their careers when they don't know anything. And when they get to the end of their careers and they've had time to think about their subject in depth and find out about their subject in depth, basically no one's interested in publishing them. I was able to be employed without publishing much um, that I didn't really want to publish. And I was always going to become productive in retirement. That's always been my plan. Uh, you say I was interested in writing a book. I don't think I've ever been interested in writing a book. Uh, I won't say it it's... might be me misremembering uh, the, the interaction then. I, I, I wouldn't say that it's too much work, but it's the wrong kind of work. It's a kind of sustained project, and I'm much too much of a dilettante to manage a sustained project. But my daughter became a podcaster. She works for The Economist podcasts these days. And she started introducing me to the forum. And I fell instantly in love with the forum. It's episodic. It's informal. It's talking to a general audience rather than to a tiny community of other academics who only read your stuff in order to slag it off. Um, it seemed to me to be perfect for me. I hoped she would be my producer. No offense, Wilhelm, but That's okay. None taken. she she moved to the states to avoid that. <laughs> so I. I uh, I needed technical support and assistance, and 
there you were talking about a YouTube channel, which I agree with you is a crazy idea. Who wants to look at me? Uh, but I hope people want to listen to me. In your exploration of London's less known areas, what's been the most surprising or unexpected discovery? Um, well, in a, in a way, I don't want to answer that question because uh, I have discovered so many weird things that are going to go into the first few episodes of this coming season um, that it, I would have to issue a spoiler alert. And, and I, we don't I want to do that. I want people to listen. Um, but discovering strange things has been happening to me for years. I joined something called the Thames Discovery Project about 20 years ago now, and that involved creating an archaeological map of the foreshore, the bed of the Thames that is exposed at low tide. And as part of our introductory training, lucky us, we were taken down onto the foreshore by Professor Gustav Milne, Gus Milne, the professor of archaeology at the time at the Institute of Archaeology and the great man of London archaeology. And he took us, there were I think seven or eight of us, he took us to a spot under a pier near London Bridge. And he said, show me the boat. And we're looking around and none of us can see the boat. And then he sort of looked down at an angle and we all realized simultaneously that we were standing in a boat. The boat had sunk, and it had sunk into the riverbed, and you could just see the rim of the gunnels, I think they're called, the, the top of the edge of the boat, and we were all standing in this thing. And I thought, boy, I've been inattentive all my life. <laughs> if I look closely, there is so much to see. Hmm. And you have seen so much as well. One thing that, that just truly fascinated me since meeting you is how you are able to retain the knowledge and the stories. Do you have a special way of, of sucking everything up uh, and storing it somehow? Or does it ju just come naturally to you? Uh, it's it's largely repetition. I take people on the same walks <laughs> over and over and over again, and I try never to do the same thing twice. So my strategy is to always add at least one new thing. So uh, I'll be taking a group around whatever, and most of what I've been saying I've got down more or less by heart. But then there will be one new thing, and even at my age, I can generally remember one new thing. I can't remember 50. Well, in your view, how has London's character changed over the year that you've been studying and exploring it? 
So I suppose you can divide that up into two uh, two questions: the the total time of study or total time of living here, uh, so from today to forty years ago, and then the time in in that you've used to explore it. I was obsessively walking the streets of London, largely because that's what Dickens did. Um, almost as soon as I arrived, he used to walk all night because he suffered from insomnia and he would just endlessly walk the streets um, making up the latest chapter of whatever book he was writing as he went. I don't have a memory that allows me to do that, but I, I thought it was a great model. So I was constantly walking. Um, one of the first places I went was down to Docklands. And Docklands in the 1970s was abandoned. There was quite literally tumbleweed blowing where Canary Wharf is now. There we was, had tumbleweeds in there London? There was nothing. Yes, there was just weed, weeds that had dried out and become detached and were blowing along the dockside. It was astonishingly derelict. Um, St. Catherine's was just beginning to be renovated when I first visited. It was a building site. So one extraordinary change has been, I guess, the completion of rebuilding after the war and a kind of renovation that um, has gone with that because... Docklands wasn't rebuilt. It was transformed and built as something completely different from what it had been. Um, when I started walking people around, I could still show them bomb sites. In fact, there was one right across the street from the Museum of London. And when I took students to the Museum of London, it was always, we always stopped across the street and, and looked at this hole in the ground. Um, which hadn't been rescued yet. That was late 1970s, early 1980s. Um, obviously, that's changed. Joining the European Union had an enormous and incremental effect on certainly what London was like. I'm not sure about the rest of the country, but it really changed London. We got an enormous change in the composition of the population. We got new kinds of stores. We got new kinds of restaurants. We got new neighborhoods, um, which seemed quite different. And at the same time as that was going on, there was a continuation of a movement from places that had used to be part of the empire um, um, where people were, people were coming here, taking advantage of relatively relaxed immigration regulations, never really relaxed, um, to make their home here. So London was reinventing itself as what it had been a truly cosmopolitan city. It had I won't say it had stopped being that, but it became enormously more cosmopolitan in the time I've been here. I regard leaving 
the European Union as an unbelievable piece of self-harm, um, robbing London and Britain of so much that makes it exciting and a nice place to live. You're the biggest history buff that I have met uh, in person in my entire life. And I find that so fascinating about you. And as I said previously, how you retain knowledge and know the stories and, and the intricacies and everything. Do you have any advice for other history enthusiasts? London is extraordinarily rich in resources for not just the history of London, but even more for local history of neighborhoods and areas. Every borough has a designated local history library with, it's amazing in this era of austerity, still a trained librarian with a special expertise in the history of the borough. That's a wonderful resource and one we should preserve by using um, whenever we can. Most places have at least one local history society. Um, out where I live in Richmond, there's a Richmond Society, there's a Q Society, there's a Mortlake Community Association. Um, roughly every two blocks, there's another cluster of amateur historians um, who really do know the area in a way that a dilettante like I, like I am really does not. Um, they are astonishingly learned. Um, there are also websites, Londonist, Spitalfield's Life, um, which are again run by people who are amazingly knowledgeable, much more knowledgeable than I am. And of course, there's a whole tourist industry of walking tours. Um, I, I, my only unease about starting the podcast was I didn't want to compete with people making a living out of telling stories about London. Um, there is a very good podcast run by um, a set of people who give professional tours, the London History Podcast. Not as good as mine, but very good in its way. <laughs> They're good in their own right. And I think um, by by telling the stories that you know, we uh, inspire to go on these tours in case people are even more interested uh, and want to come and see it for themselves. One, one sad thing about the moment is that the Museum of London is in a period of transition. They have closed their, um, their current building, I guess, and they are building an enormous new facility um, in Smithfield. It should be open in a couple of years, and that will, um, that will greatly add to our access to knowledge of and exciting stories about London. It's going to be a wonderful place. If we're going to go into some personal reflections, 
Is there any particular period or event in London's history that you feel particularly drawn or fascinated by? I came here as a Victorianist, uh, immersed in the 19th century. And I still love London becoming the world's greatest, the world's richest, the capital of the empire, um, at the same time as becoming the place with the largest slums in the world, the place where the word slum was invented because it really needed to be. The complexity and the density of that period really appeals to me. But I'm also now quite fond of the much smaller and even more chaotic and even more filthy and disorderly London of the 18th century. Um, Hogarth has become a great hero of mine. So um, 200 years, I guess, from about 1710 until 1914, that's where I live. I see. And I suppose also with the in incredible complexity of all the stories and intricacies, there is very hard, it's hard to pinpoint a period that is the favorite or a story that is your favorite. No, I don't really have a favorite story. No. Um, it depends on the moment and the audience. Hmm. Do you think that looking into the future that London will continue to expand as rapidly as it has been doing over the last couple of centuries? Or have we reached some kind of... Because London is absolutely massive currently. Do you think that it will continue to expand or have we reached some kind of limit? London grew exponentially in population for about 300 years, from late 1500s until the late 1800s. It was doubling in population about every 50 or 60 years. The curve is not smooth, but that's the, that's the net result. That turned it into what was then the biggest city in the world in population. The curve of physical expansion was quite different and depended much more on technology. To begin with, all those people are being crammed into basically the same medieval space and it's getting more and more crowded and more and more unbearable. But with the coming of the omnibus and the coming of the train and the coming of the underground, London is able to expand physically and so by 1900, it's more or less where it is now. And it also levels off in population. And that was more or less true for the entire 20th century. Um, again, the curve is not smooth. Um, things go up, go down, things change. But London at the end of the 20th century is roughly the same population and roughly the same physical size as London at the end of the 19th century. Then it started to grow again. 
um, and not grow as rapidly as it has before, but still grow significantly. So it's now bigger in population, and I think bigger in size than it ever has been. Whether it's going to continue to do that will depend on what the long-term consequences of Brexit are, I think, um, how transportation technology develops, and how what we discovered in the lockdowns of the pandemic that we could work from home, that we could work anywhere, many of us, how that will develop. Um, and I don't know the answer to those questions, but I wouldn't bet against London's continuing growth because that seems to be betting against history. So I know this from first-hand perspective producing this, the amount of research and effort that you put in into every single episode. Could you maybe share to the listeners how your process of writing a script for a for a size trees episode goes? Okay, I will use an example, the one I'm working on at the moment, which is the first one of our second season. And I decided because I've long been fascinated by the area without knowing much about it, that I was going to devote several episodes to the area around White Cross Street, just to the north of the Barbican. I've been there. There seems to be a lot going on. Uh, I did a bit of very casual historical research. There seems to have been a lot that has gone on. I was confident that the history and the geography of the place were dense enough to be able to sustain a series of episodes. And then the next stage was maps I looked really closely at not just current maps, but also historical maps to see what I might want to include. And then the next stage was to go out and walk the area. And I spent a long day, kind of a wet day, um, doing that and found an enormous amount of stuff and then the next stage has been the academic research. I now have an idea of which, bit, which bits I want to talk about. Now it's time to look at the archaeological surveys at the 19th century antiquarians um, writing books about the area. Um, the bloggers and the websites, um, which are often surprisingly accurate, but are important to me, not so much for what they say themselves as where they say they got their information, because I will go back a stage to look at where they found what they think they found. Um, and I've more or less done that with this first episode, and I was finding more and more things to talk about as I went through that process. It was getting 
more and more difficult to write because I was going to have to be more and more selective. But I got there in the end. So it is uh, an, a long and intense process, but I'm sure uh, uh, both me and the listeners can agree that we're, we're always very, very happy with the, the end results. Um, speaking of that, shall we let the listeners know what they can expect for next season? Yes, please. Um, I'm planning... 11 episodes starting in January, um, coming out roughly once a month. I'm thinking of them as three mini-series. The first four will be about White Cross Street. Um, we'll tour the area from south to north, taking a kind of hypothetical walk in the first episode. And we're going to visit no less than seven cemeteries. That's a whole lot of cemeteries. I thought it was only going to be five until I started doing my homework, and then I found two more, um, which wonderfully completed the whole historical survey. I thought I was going to have to apologize that there wasn't a Roman cemetery in the area, but it turns out there was a Roman cemetery in the area. There's a punchline to that, but we'll... We'll save it for January. Um, I think perhaps 200,000, perhaps a quarter of a million people have been buried in the six square blocks that I will be um, paying my attention to. They must have been quite literally piled one on top of one another. <laughs> it, uh, and... That will enable me to talk about edginess again because we have reasons for putting cemeteries on the edge of town. Um, complex reasons. Public health is an important issue, but there are others as well. It will also enable me to get um, my listeners oriented to the neighborhood as a whole because they might not know it. And it will enable me to say something about London's history of religious diversity and, for that matter, religious persecution, the limits of religious diversity, which are both are visible in that area. The second episode is going to talk about what my colleagues at Holt would call the creative industries because that area has been really important in their development. One of London's first theaters was there. London's first drama school was there. Um, Grub Street, which became the term used for a professional hack writer. Grub Street was actually a street in the area, it no longer exists. Um, and the area is still important in the creative industries. The Barbican Art Center and the Guildhall School of Music and Drama are there. So this is a continuing, ongoing story. Third episode will be dear to your heart, I'm sure, about beer. Um, two of the world's largest breweries were almost side by side. 
um, in that area in the 18th century. What on earth were they doing there? How and why did they get so big? And why have they completely and utterly vanished? Uh, there is nothing of them left. And the last one, this was one of the things that originally sparked my interest in the area, will be about redevelopment. Um, the area was blitzed to smithereens, at least the southern bit was, in, um, in World War II. And the, the plan afterwards was not to rebuild. It was to create something utterly different from anything that had gone before. But even there, it's building on roots of redevelopment. There were earlier attempts to completely change the character of the neighborhood by building large-scale projects, and I want to tell that story. So those are the first four. Then you're responsible for this. You, 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 you sort of invited me to do this. We're going to go Roman. Um, and we're going to go from micro-history, looking at a very small neighborhood, to three episodes looking at really big questions. The first one is, why is London where it is? Um, the second one is, what did the Romans mean by civilization? And the third one is what happened to London and what happened to civilization when the Romans left. Those are three episodes. The last four, I'm going home. I live in Richmond and we haven't really looked at suburban London yet, so we're going to spend four episodes out in the suburbs. The first one will be another imaginary walk along the Thames looking at the houses of the great, the good, the corrupt, and the powerful um, built there from the Middle Ages into the 19th century. Um, the second will be um, the story of the oddest person, I think, who has ever lived in London, the second Earl of Kilmory, and the absolutely gorgeous, the suburban paradise that is his legacy, where some of my luckiest neighbors get to live. It's a story that you, you, you can't even imagine what will turn out. Uh, first time I heard about it, I... I, I I couldn't my my chin was on the floor my, I I couldn't believe what Alan was telling me, so that is absolutely something to look forward to. The third Richmond episode will be about a completely forgotten immigrant community, refugee community, um, the Belgians of St. Margaret's who came um, when Belgium was overrun in th by the Germans in the First World War and what happened to them. And then the last, and I think this will be 
a fun end of season, we'll look at the entirely counterintuitive, completely unexpected, vital role of the leafy middle-class borough of Richmond in the history of rock and roll. I hope that sounds appetizing. It sounds like a full 11-course uh, meal, and uh, I'm, I'm sure we're all very, very excited to hear more about it. Well, I think that's enough for now. I've got to get to work on my scripts. This episode was researched and presented by me, Alan Hertz, my producer, editor, interrogator. That's is, me. Is Wilhelm Schenk. And it is, as usual, a Black Lab Media production. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And Merry Christmas. Happy Holidays. Happy Holidays.